Welcome into a brand new episode of 300 Yards to Unknown. I'm Rick Gaiman coming to you from Blue Wire Studios at Win Las Vegas, and I'm very excited to bring in our guest for today. It's Bo Hostler. Bo, much appreciated you jumping on and you joining the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, I want to dive into a lot of golf-related stuff. I want to dive into some fun stuff, but I am very well aware that today is your birthday. So first off, happy birthday, my dude. <laughs> Yeah, thanks. I'm gracing you with my my presence on my birthday. I know you that? should not be working. You should just be like doing anything but <laughs> being on this podcast right now on your birthday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the you're you're 27, but I think in golf years you feel older than that, which I think is kind of a compliment, Bo, because uh, one you've been in this kind of golf ether for a long time. I was a little surprised to see you're only 27. Yeah, I mean it does feel like I've been playing pretty high level competitive golf probably since younger ages than most of the guys on tour so yeah it does it does feel like i've been playing longer than whatever it's been five years do you think that playing at a high level for as long as you have are you now reaping the benefits of that i imagine there's a ton of experience along the way that you have gathered and even at a younger age than some of these guys who are coming out going bonkers right out of college you were kind of in the heat of the battle much earlier than that yeah, um, I think so. I think every every player, you know, you learn over time, right? You learn mainly through just experiences that you have on the golf course uh, in competitive environments. And um, like you said, I've been doing it for a long time. So um, I kind of am yet to get into a position that I have not experienced before. But then again, the more and more you experience those feelings and emotions and whatnot, um, whether it's none at all on a Wednesday practice round or being in contention on a Sunday, like all those moments start to add up and, and you become more and more comfortable on a week-to-week -week basis. Generally, when I talk to talk to guys who play at a high level, there's kind of two you know, thought processes for this. When you're, when you're in the mix, when you're in the heat of the battle, some guys want to feel nothing, Bo. They want to just feel like it's a Tuesday afternoon money game with their buddies at the club and others want to feel something, kind of have a little bit of adrenaline, a little bit of knowing that the big prize is ahead. Where do you kind of fall on that spectrum? Mm -hmm. Well, I think kind of the key is to kind of do both, right? Um, if you can put yourself in a position to make uh, what would be uncomfortable comfortable, then you're at a huge advantage, aren't you? Um, and also, to be fair, I think there's a lot of players that perform better when they are slightly uncomfortable. Um, and I think I put myself in that category. I, I feel like when, you know, shots are really important, I kind of focus more and really come to this grips with, like, accepting results easier uh, rather than trying to force results. And I think that's kind of the key. And you look at guys that are successful in high-pressure moments – almost always comes down to commitment. Um, and you see the guys that perform in those moments, you know, you watch them play and they don't look, they don't look phased by the moment. They look like they're basically committed to the same process that they would be on a Tuesday or, or Thursday or Friday. The, the commitment part is, is fascinating to me, not only as a amateur weekend hacker, but also I think we kind of saw it in full force at the players championship. Obviously, you have a golf course, and especially when you get to 16, 17, and 18, which is asking you to hit so many committed shots, and we've got outside forces like wind, Bo, and 
you could tell there were a lot of guys stepping on 17T and, and there was a lot of lack of commitment. That's got to be probably one of the harder places on tour, especially with what we saw this past week to actually commit to a swing. Yeah, uh, oddly enough, I, I've i always felt it easier to commit the more difficult the conditions are. Um, I don't know why that is. I think for me, it potentially might be the fact that you know that you have no chance if you're not totally committed versus if the conditions are really easier, the golf court, you go to Palm Springs, for example, for our Amex tournament. And like you can get away with hitting some pretty uncommitted poor swings on most of the shots, right? But then you take, for example, like what you just said at Sawgrass last week. Unfortunately, I didn't play in the super windy conditions, only just a couple holes. But, you know, you're watching guys on television on the 17th hole. And regardless of the conditions, the most club they were hitting was probably a 7 or 8 iron. And they would hit, you know, a few shots that you're like, you would never hit that on the driving range, right? Just the commitment level, exactly what you just you spoke to. Now, you you seem to be alluding to the fact that I, I don't want to say you like those conditions, but you find it a little bit easier to commit to the shots. Does that make you some type of sicko that like when things get super tough and super crazy, that's when the yeah. best of you is coming out? <laughs> the best way I could describe it is I. It's not fun. There's no fun part about that. And, and my caddy and I were talking about it really starting from like Riviera this year, right? It's like you play Riviera. You play the Honda, you play Bay Hill, you play, um, you know, the players. And you're in that stretch where literally every golf hole that you play is consequential and it's a grind. Mm. And it's not fun. You finish the round and you feel like you just played two two rounds of golf. You're exhausted. But as far as like, at it, if I had to choose to do that or choose to go play in one of our summer tournaments that, you know, 22 to 28 under par is going to win the tournament, I would prefer the extremely difficult condition because I think it favors it favors my style of golf. Like I've never I've never really been a player that takes it super low consistently, but I'm really good at grinding out on difficult golf courses, you know, even par one under, two under, three under. And it's really nice to be able to move up the leaderboard that way. But to your point, I think I maybe I am a sicko because I enjoy it. I enjoy kind of the do or die aspect of commitment and you want to talk about like a tournament that requires that on every shot i think most players on tour would would say the honda classic at pga national yeah i mean i think i think realistically there's water in play i mean it feels like three out of four shots on that course right off the tee iron shots approach shots layups it's unbelievable and you have you know in west palm you get some pretty good wind if you hit uncommitted shots, you have no chance. At least if you hit a committed shot, you know, some things are out of your control. You know, you could get a wind switch, whatever it is, or just a misjudgment, right? But it's like, for me, I, I enjoy the process of getting as committed as I can to what I'm doing. And I think it makes it easier for me to swallow the result one way or the other. See, I, I like that. And I, I also find it that if I don't hit a committed shot in my $5 game on the weekend, I won't be able to live with myself, Bo, right? So I'd rather hit a committed <laughs> shot and uh, take the horrible outcome than to feel like I never even gave myself a chance, which feels like the kind of same vibe you're, you're living in right now. Exactly. And I think a lot of that has to do with scoring, right? It's reactionary. It's the fact that you know, say you're playing in uh, the John Deere Classic and you know likely 25 under par or so is going to win the tournament. And you have a blow-up hole in your first nine holes of the tournament. You make the turn at three over par. 
I mean, you know, you talk to like <laughs> mental coaches or strategic coaches are like, stay the course. You're like, okay, well the cut's going to be six under, <laughs> right? And like, I have to make something happen here. And you start trying to force results. And sometimes there you can kind of get away with it because it's soft, it's hot, the ball's going forever. Um, and you know, the scores you're capable of shooting really low versus, you know, you play at Bay Hill and you, you're two, three over par after nine holes. And as much as it sucks, you tell your caddy, you're like, if we can shoot even or better on the back nine, we're still making up strokes on the field. And so I think the commitment to a proper, relatively conservative strategy is easier in that environment than it is when it's guns ablaze and putting contests, you know, just basically get the ball in play and hit a wedge as close as you can and make a putt. Because I think for me, I just start trying to force results when it's a little bit easier. Yeah. Speaking of results, and I want to get to some of the results that you've put together here, here recently, because um, they're worth, they're worth talking about, but I want to put a bow on the players championship for just one second, 20 million bucks sure. in the purse bow. I mean, how outrageously awesome is that for, for you guys out there to have an opportunity to make big bucks if you can get hot and pop for a week? Yeah, it's a tough cut to miss, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, 100%. It was, it was interesting. You know, I, I saw, like, the first breakdown. It's like, oh, 3.6 million to the winner. I'm like, wow. Like, did they bump the percentage? Or is the purse just that freaking big? And it is just that big a purse. It's unbelievable. And, you know, hopefully, um, you know, I think, you know, purses are trending that way, really, right? I mean, I think the players is the biggest purse in the world, and I think the tour does that on purpose, right? They try to make their flagship event the best purse, the best tournament in the world, the best that they can do, right? And they do a hell of a job. It's an unbelievable event from top to bottom. But, yeah, I mean... I've seen our purses grow even just since I've been on tour, which I guess this is my fifth year now. Um, you know, a lot of the tournaments that we play are double-digit million-dollar purses, and I don't think there were that many even just five years ago. Yeah, and there's only one direction they're going in, Bo. They're going, they're going up, baby. They're not, they're not going down. Yeah. They're not staying the same. More money getting injected into the game, which is awesome. Final thoughts on the Players' Championship. One of the kind of subplots, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you saw this, but correct me if you didn't, uh, kind of the Daniel Berger, Victor Hovland, Joel Damon situation where they were talking about where a drop should be taken. I don't necessarily need yep. to get into the dirty little details of all of it, but we only saw that bow because we have a bunch of cameras out there at the Players' Championship and we've got mics all over the place. How often sure. is a scenario like that happening out on tour? It's, it's actually really ironic that you asked that question because I had the same scenario um, at the Arnold Palmer Invitational just uh, the previous week. Um, and it's tough, right? Because every player has uh, an obligation to protect the field mm -hmm. and to not allow a player to, or at least to voice their opinion um, about where a player should drop or shouldn't. And I will say this. 99% of the guys on the PGA Tour, I respect and trust their integrity and their intention um, as much as you possibly could. Um, and you look at like that scenario that you're talking about. I, to be fair, I've only watched you know whatever the one one minute, 25 second clip that I saw of Bug talking to the rules official, and a little bit of the 
conversation that they had between the players. And I can tell you that um, I've been on both sides of that. And I can tell you a guy like Boog, like he's, you know, he ended up taking what was a, in his mind, a compromise drop uh, location. And, you know, I can tell you that a player like that has no intention of trying to um, skate the rules or take an unfair drop. Uh, that was his opinion. The other two players voiced their opinion, um, and they're more than welcome to do that, of course. Um, and it's a difficult posi um, position because at the end of the day, the only person's opinion that actually matters is the player who hit the shot. And so by the rules, Boog could have dropped that ball exactly where he expected that it crossed the line, which uh, to my knowledge was quite a ways up farther than he ended up actually dropping it. And so, you know, I'm no rules expert or rules official. Um, I can just tell you that as far as, you know, the vast, vast majority of the players on tour, <clears throat> excuse me, there is no intent to take advantage of the rules or um, hurt the field in any other way than just them taking what they, they believe was the proper job. And you mentioned it, because my next question was going to be around kind of does it matter who approaches you, right? I mean, I think, I think Victor Hovland, I think Joel Damon, and Daniel Berger for, for all, all of that combined, all, I think, three of them very much get the benefit of the doubt that what they're trying to do is 100% uh, in line with the integrity of the tour. They're not trying to take anything extra. I was going to ask, does it matter who approaches you? But you, uh, you kind of threw it out there. 99.9% .9 of the guys you think are out there to make sure we're protecting the field. That's kind of the mm -hmm. uh, hidden oath that you take, and you guys take it very seriously. Yeah, I mean, I think our sport's different, really, than than other sports, isn't it? Um, yeah. Other sports, you're trying to gain an advantage by using the rules or trying not to get caught breaking rules, right? Like, right. that's part of the deal, right? Like, you look at a football player. What is a defensive back trying to do? They're trying to initiate as much contact as they can possibly do without getting a flag, as they should. But you don't see in golf guys trying to take advantage of rules. You see guys calling penalties on themselves. Um, you see guys, again, in, in Boog's defense, I mean, he took a drop, likely that cost him a stroke at that $20 million purse valuation. Hmm. Um, right? I mean, yeah. I'm just saying that that drop, that difference could have cost him. I Don't quote me on where he finished. I know he played quite well, but it easily could have cost him six figures, I believe. And he did it. And he did it not because he believed that it was right, but he he didn't want to put his integrity or his, um, you know, relationship really with those other players at um, a bad spot. So, you know, it sucks to do that. Um, but I don't see that happening in any other sport, right? I don't see guys compromising. I don't see guys calling penalties on themselves. I see guys as they're coached and ought to do, right, with the, the way that the other sports are played, is they, they try and get away with as much as you can possibly get away with. It's just a different, um, it's a different mentality with golf. Yeah, it really is. It's fascinating. I don't, I don't see Kevin Durant calling fouls on himself. I don't see all of that happening. Right. So, so you're right. Um, I, I want to get into what you've been up to recently because we're, we're, we're on a good stretch here. But we've got a, a third-place finish at, at Pebble Beach, a couple of top 20s. Uh, during the Florida swing, how are you assessing the, the current state of your game? 
yeah, it's it's really good. Um, you know, I think the players might have been my <laughs> eighth tournament in a row. Yeah, I saw that. That's crazy, bro. What are you What are you doing out yeah. there playing so much? <laughs> well, the, I'll tell you why. Let me explain it to you because maybe some people don't understand. So, you know, I finished one forty eight, I believe, on the FedEx last year, which you know, top one twenty five keeps full status, and you finish in that one twenty six to one fifty, you retain what they call conditional status. Well, what that means is you have your one hundred twenty five guys that have full status. Then you have your 50 guys, which are your 25 from the Corn Ferry Tour money list, or now I think it's points list, plus the 25 guys from the Corn Ferry Finals points list. So there you are at 175 players with effectively full status, plus you have um, medical exemptions, which is somewhere in the range of 5 to 18 guys. And all those guys are in front of this 126 to 150 category. So you look at the field sizes, and a lot of the times, um, you know, you, it's always between 132 and 156 players. So just on that math alone, a lot of the time I'm going to need, you know, 20, 20 to 40 guys not to play that week for me to have a chance to get into the tournament. Um, and so in the fall, I only got to play in two events and I played well at Napa. I think I finished 16th and I missed the cut in Bermuda. And so I'm in a category where based on your FedEx cup ranking after certain events, it's usually after about four to eight events, they reshuffle the category and I got to move up a little bit, but even so I'm still behind so many of those players. So I kind of was in a position that I needed to play. Shoot, I was Monday qualifying in the fall. Um, I did about four or five of them because I wasn't in the field and had nothing else to do, so I might as well give myself an opportunity. So uh, starting out this year, this calendar year, um, I was, I'm still in that category, but um, you know, I was subject to basically play whatever, whatever tournaments I got into. So I, I got into the Sony Open. I played. I missed the cut. I did not get into Palm Springs. And then I only got into Torrey Pines because John Ha withdrew on Thursday morning and I was on site. So I missed the cut there. And, you know, when you're in that category, you have to play wherever you can. And I got into Pebble Beach and had an awesome week. And, and it really changed the course of my schedule um, by a gross amount this year because it launched me up to, I don't remember the exact number, but I'm going to say it was top 50 in the FedEx Cup. And that time of year i was fortunate enough to you know get into the phoenix open just straight off of a top 10 at pebble and then la i got in on my current year fedex cup um i got into honda on my 126 number and then bay hill i got in off the current year fedex cup and the players i got in off the fedex cup and so all those FedEx Cup events, I would not have gotten in off my 126 number. So I really had to take advantage um, and play in those. And so I did that. And, you know, for example, this week is back to going off uh, current year status. has nothing to do with how you performed effectively. And I did not get into the Valspar by, I think, 13 players or something like that, um, including all whatever 10 or 12 guys that pulled out after the players' tournament. 
So what it sounds like is uh, you taking as many bites at the apple as you can, right? Taking as many as yep. many cracks as you can get into, which now currently sitting 52nd in the FedEx Cup standings, I'm sure you're happy with that. You're you're you like where you're at, but the position that you've been in for the last let's call it six or eight months is probably not one that most envy, but you're making the most out of it right now. And you're kind of on the right side of things as we, uh, we're, we're probably about halfway through the season, something like that. Yeah. Ish. Um, yeah, it's, I'll tell you what, it's a tough, it's a tough spot because when you don't know when you're going to play yeah. and you're in a reshuffable category, every start is incredibly important. Um, especially the, the ones at the beginning, right? Because, you can open doors to play really well. I believe Harris English got to the tour championship out of my category. Um, and I believe Corey Connors did the same thing, but it's rare. Um, it's a really tough spot because you think about the starts, you know, say you get 15 starts. A lot of the times you don't know leading up to the event, if you're going to get in or not. So it's kind of difficult to mentally prepare. Other times you're playing in your five half point events. Um, so, you know, tough, really to gain a ton of points there unless you finish really high. And then, um, you know, the rest of them are mainly in the summer. There's not a lot of golf to be played out of that category in the fall and early part of the year if you don't play really well at the beginning. And so, like I said, um, finishing third at Pebble has totally changed um, the, the trajectory of my um, schedule for the remainder of the season and um, obviously hopefully the same way moving forward. The, the entire Monday qualification process feels insane to me, and it feels like over the last couple of years it's gotten even harder. Now it's like, oh, yeah, here's a million guys for two spots, and we're going to go to a 16-man yeah. playoff. And like, it, it just seems like you have to have an unbelievable Monday to even give yourself a chance to get in. But I still don't know if that's as bad, Bo, as being on site, maybe the first or second alternate, <laughs> waiting for someone to drop out. You're certainly yeah. not rooting for somebody to pull a hammy or whatever, but like they're kind right. of their own individual beasts. No doubt. I mean, a Monday qualifier is, it, it's actually to the point where, you know, you just have to go feel like you play one of the better rounds that you've played. Um, likely you're playing between 75 and 150 guys for between three and four spots. And I literally shot eight under par at a Monday qualifier for the Shriners this year in Vegas and was in a, was going to be in a 12 for one playoff until the last guy came. So I got, I didn't even get in a playoff at eight under par. Um, and to be fair, the course was easy, but I don't care how easy the course is. You have to shoot nine plus under par to get into the tournament. It's unbelievable. We've seen some guys who, after they're like, you know, they play four holes and they're one over, they just walk off the golf course. I mean, because you yeah. you know you've got a birdie everything everything coming in. Yeah. Um, so my rookie year, I was not in the Phoenix Open, and I played the Monday qualifier, and I believe it's still the same way. But it was two waves, so there's a morning and afternoon wave, which call it a you know roughly full field of like 150 players for three spots and i played in the afternoon and before i even teed off there was a 10 under and two nine unders um and i'm like okay well i have to shoot at this point i have to shoot nine under par to get in the playoff and i haven't even started yet um so that just shows you i played with a guy that birdied the first seven holes and did not qualify <laughs> that's so brutal it's brutal out there 
Now, I mean, we, we yeah. talked about it. You're now 50, 52nd in the FedEx Cup standings. Uh, so what is what is the rest of the season look like? I imagine you're still going to just take as many cracks as you can, ensure that you're staying in, in the category that you want to be in. But we've got match play coming up, but there's an opposite field event. Like what what is the next kind of few weeks look like for you in your current status? Yeah, so... Um... Again, that's why I've been playing a lot. I think there's still uncertainty because, you know, the majority of the events are based off your finish from last year. And, you know, you'll have your invitationals that will count for current year, the players. Um, and then, you know, uh, majors, obviously, it depends on your world. It depends. There's different qualifications for each one. But basically, the majority of the events, I'll still be in that 126 to 150 category. Uh, as far as priority so like for example as of now uh the valero texas open i think i'm out of the field by six or seven players um and that could easily go the other way or it could allow me to get in with guys pulling out we have no idea and that's kind of the difficult part right going back to what i was talking about is you're in a position where you don't really know uh and there's no really consistency to how the field uh, moves kind of near the end like some events 10 15 guys will pull out other events zero will so um, it's tough to really know you you seem to be very in tune with the way the tour works with your standing and everything I assume Bo that translates to your statistics are you well aware of your stats and how closely are you looking at those yeah I am um, certainly uh you know, they provide a really good baseline. I think there's a lot of, you know, little nuances that you need to be careful of. Sometimes there's just a gross outlier um, that will skew kind of your whole statistical profile for a period of time until kind of that that average grows, right? But, um, yeah, no, I, I think statistics are incredibly important. Um, I, I use them a lot. Um, and, yeah, I am aware uh, kind of of where I've been and, and the trends that are, are happening for me. Uh, you are certainly making hay in the short game this week. That is probably, or this year, excuse me. That's probably what you'd consider to be the, the, the strength of your game, but how, how quick, you know, what's a good sample size for you? Is it, you know, rolling 20 rounds? Is it a couple of weeks? Like what is a good time period to assess? Hey, this tells me at least somewhat of a story about how my game is right now. Yeah, I think, um, I guess rather than focus on the period of time, I think it's important to probably pull out outliers one way or the other. Mm. So I'll give you an example. Uh, I played the players this week, and I have not actually dug into it yet. I can promise you my strokes gain approach on Friday was absolutely horrific. <laughs> um, if I had to guess, I'd say it was probably minus five shots in one round or more, maybe minus seven. Um, and the reason is, is because I rinsed it on 17. I took a drop. I knew I probably had to save a bogey and then make birdie on 18 to make the cut. And so I played a really aggressive next wedge shot to try and give myself a chance to save bogey, hit it just over the green in the water again. And so that, that hole alone, I lose probably three and a half shots approach at least. Um, but really, I made two great swings. So that's the type of thing I'm talking about. That's a, that's, an, that's a large enough amount to really skew an average 
potentially season long so far, just over two quality golf shots. I couldn't honestly say that I hit two poor shots or that my irons and wedges suck because of that. Right. Yeah, no, for, for sure. The other thing that we always battle with is intent, right? Kind of what guys, you know, your strokes game putting is like, Hey, did you hit the line with the speed that you thought and you just misread it? Well, that's going to sure. negatively impact your strokes game putting. I do have your, uh, sure. I have your round two strokes gained approach number. Would you like me to tell you what it was? Can I take a guess? Please. I'd actually much prefer you take a guess. Yes. Um, now, to be fair, it's probably going to be a little better than I expected because a lot of guys played when it was blowing 40. Right. So it is relative, right? Yes. But I still think it's minus 5 to minus 6. All right, minus 4.9. Yeah. Okay. You're right go. on it. Yeah, but, you, but you're right. The, yep. um, and I, I could pull up the single hole, but I'd have to log into something else. But, like, the vast majority of that, I'm sure, is coming from 17. Correct. It's three and a half shots at least. Yeah. And so not to mention, right, like, if I, I'm just saying I'm not trying to make excuses here. I'm giving you – what happened? So we go play, right? And we go out and finish. Um, what I, Sunday morning, I guess. And I play hole five to start, and the wind chills, you know, twenty-seven degrees, and was like that, frankly, for probably six, seven, eight, nine holes, right? And so when I'm looking at my own um, real assessment of my iron play or my golf swing, whatever it might be, I can't really hold that against myself because frankly, that's an environment that I have next to zero experience playing in. And I can't say that I'm hitting my tee shots terrible because I couldn't feel my hands and snipe hooked a hybrid in the water on the sixth hole. Right. <laughs> but that's what happened. And statistically I'm going to pay for it. But as far as my true assessment of what's going on, I have to just throw that out. Um, just like I would throw it out if you made an albatross and you've happened to hole out from 270, you can't be like, oh, my three-wood game's unbelievable because I gained two and a half shots right there. It's just, it's an outlier. Yeah, it's it's completely reasonable. And yeah, uh, we, I think we were bordering on act of God level uh, nature last week at the Players' Championship. So I, I right. don't blame you for for throwing those out. Uh, speaking of the data, that's that's my world. My world's also fantasy golf. It's also the gambling side of it. And Bo, as the PGA Tour has kind of embraced and partnered up with some of these sports books, some of these fantasy sites, have you kind of noticed an influx of people telling you that they bet on you or that they put you in their fantasy lineups? Yeah, you hear it quite a bit. Um, <laughs> my favorite is when you like three putt for double and you just hear, oh man, that's really going to hurt the fantasy. You're like, Right. I'm sure you, I'm sure you really that. care about I that. Care yeah. <laughs> that's the, the farthest thing from what I'm worried about. <laughs> it's so funny because that's the exact reaction that every, every single one of you give me. And I'm like, of course that makes sense. I don't know why people feel the need to go out and tell you. Cause really, I'm sure they only tell you when you do something wrong. They never tell you, they never give you a pat on the back when things go right. No, you don't. And I mean, I, I just wish like if you could put together a audio book of, you know, every player has played the tour for X amount of years, just giving you their one or two or three fan highlights, low lights, low lights would just be epic, epic content. Uh, that might be a multi-million dollar idea. We'll be able to, uh... I mean, it might be the greatest thing ever. Just, you just need a couple cause everybody's got them. Right. Yeah. And, or even from a volunteer, right. You hit one in the bushes. You're like, Oh yeah, we got it. But you're, you're really not going to like it. You're like, you just, you get it all the time. And it sucks. It's hilarious looking back in the moment. You're just like so pissed off. 
but <laughs> it's not like they have any ill intent, but my goodness, it is wild to me. Some of the things that get said to players on the golf course. Bo, we found your ball, but you're dead over here. <laughs> yeah, you're, you might want to just go back to the team. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll assess that situation. Thank you very much for, for finding it. Um, I'm going to get you out of here uh, shortly, Bo, but I, I'll go a little bit rapid fire here towards the end. Um, I, I like to ask some of these questions because it tells us a lot about kind of your personality, what the, what the state of your game is and all that stuff. So um, let's, oh, oh, one thing before I forget, professional golfers seem to have an unbelievable memory and they can kind of bank on, like they can remember shots that they hit or holes that they played from years ago. Do you have that skill? Do you have that ability? Uh, so if you're asking me if I'm like Sean McVay and can, can call a play from 17 years ago or whatever the hell he did, no, I cannot do that. But like highlights, of course, or lowlights, mostly mainly stories, right? Like uh, there has to be something that made it memorable, whether it was a really clutch shot or a really poor shot or something had happened around that that, you know, we had funny conversation about or whatever. But no, I can't tell you like, I couldn't tell you what I did on the fourth hole at San Antonio three years ago, that type of thing. That's probably healthy, Bo, that you can that you cannot do that. Right. I, I feel like it's the obsessive guys that can tell me what club they hit from how many yards and what the wind was doing three years ago. I get a little nervous around around those guys. But let's go let's go with this one. So you've got one approach shot. Uh, you call it. I mean, what what number do you want? This is for all the marbles. What what number do you want? What pin location do you want? What club are you hitting? What's your shot shape? Like I, I give you a scenario that you get to draw up on the golf course. What does it look like? Um I would prefer to have something under a hundred yards to a left pin. I'd be licking my chops. Under 100 yards to a left pin, do you prefer to play like a little spinny draw? Like, what are we doing? I draw everything, yeah. And, and I feel like when I have left pins, um, I can kind of hit it up the middle of the green, and it just feels like my ball is always working towards the hole versus when the pins on the ball is always getting farther away. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you look at the pin sheet the night before and you see like 12 front right pins and you're like, ah, crap? <laughs> I don't look. To, I try not to get too far ahead of myself on that stuff. Um, I've done it in the past and I've tried to like game plan and, and then, you know, you get a different wind direction or whatever than you were expecting. And it just feels like it throws everything off. I'm more reactionary. I actually sometimes won't even, I'll mark the pins in my book, but I won't really like analyze them until I'm actually playing the hole. Have you uh, felt any big difference? Well, how about the change of not having the, the greens reading aspect in, in your book? How has, how has that been for you this year? Yeah, it's been, um, it's been very different. I will say I'm a lot more used to it now. The first couple tournaments, I found myself like pulling into my book, looking for the green book, and it just wasn't there. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> um, I've, been, I've been using it for years, and I, you know, we could get into how I feel about the, the rule change. I, I think that the same guys are going to put you know, the same. That's my opinion. Um, with that said, I found that to be a very useful piece of information and I put the work in to know the numbers and know how to use the numbers and arrows and topography to my advantage and I think I was really good at doing that. Um, with that said, I think a lot of guys didn't, you know, they might have the book but they might use it once a tournament or they might just look for a straight putt every once in a while um, or there's other guys like Bryson that are literally nailing the math down to whatever it is, you know, an inch or something. So I think it affected everybody differently. Uh, it affected me, um, just my routine more than anything. Um, 
but yeah, I think, uh, you know, my opinion, honestly, is that they should have never been made, but I just think retroactively pulling something out is just really difficult to do and difficult to enforce. That is a fascinating topic that I do want to get your thoughts on. That might be another podcast because I'm, I'm, I've got a lot of thoughts about that one too. Two more for you and we'll get you out of here. Um, You've been a staunch supporter, Bo, of the visor for years. What are the benefits of the visor over the actual hat? So <laughs> we can compare the visor and the hat, but what we really should be doing is comparing the tour visor versus what I call the Lane Kiffin visor. Oh, and so, okay. which is effectively a hat that they cut the top out of is the Lane Kiffin visor. And then the tour visor um, is more of like an old school look like, the best example I could use would be like Freddie Couples. Yeah. Um, you know, he rocked that thing forever. And it's just a little bigger visor. And I was kind of, you know, I wore it since I was younger in high school. My whole team kind of wore them because we just thought they were cool. And then, um, you know, I wore it in college at Texas. I had a Texas script one that I wore at the US Open at Olympic Club, and everybody loved that. Um, and, you know, since I've been a pro, I've just kind of worn it. It's been my look. I love it. Uh, I can't say that it provides any extra value as far as uh, <laughs> technology like that. But, um, you know, Keith Mitchell's out there wearing the uh, the tour visor now. And uh, I think once you're on that train, it's tough to get off. Is there kind of a band of brothers of the visor wearers? Do you guys, you know, like like do you hear stories about bald guys? Bald guys kind of give each other the nod, you know, when they walk past one another. Is that is that what's happening with guys who wear visors? I'd for sure say that, you know, the tour visor mafia type thing, you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, I mean, I hear when I'm playing, not that I have a ton of guys watching me play, but oh, here, it's a great day to be a visor and stuff like that. Like, you're... <laughs> okay. That's so good. Last one, we'll get you out of here. Um, this one's always fun. Uh, you get to, you're in charge of golf now. You're the golf czar. You get to change one rule, uh, whatever it is, it's yours. You own it. Now, I'll give you a couple of examples while you think about this, Bo. Some guys, uh, Doc Redmond said he wants he wants 12 inches throughout the round, and he can move his ball 12 inches without penalty. That could be one inch for a tap-in that he had missed. He could save 12 inches and use it at one time. Uh, Cheyenne Woods said she wants one mulligan a week. There's been countless ways to go about doing this. One rule, you change it. What do you got? Okay, I'm going to give you one and a half. I love that. And it would have been one until I watched the coverage on on Monday of the final round. Oh, so I know, I know where we're going with the half of one. <laughs> when you hit a ball and it goes in someone else's plug mark, that is just the biggest load of crap ever. Yes. To have to play that ball. I don't know how you change the rule to do that, but I clearly that is a disaster. Yes. And the odds of it happening is like once in a career, but I just I don't think that's a good rule. Anyways, and I by the way I don't have a solution to it. Now, my real one rule to change, and this is my biggest pet peeve in the world, is when you get up to your ball in the middle of the fairway and you have half the ball covered in mud and you have zero control over what the ball's going to do. So you're, you're advocating for what? Lift, clean, and place all the time? No, I'm advocating. I'm not advocating, actually, either way. <laughs> I'm just telling you it's the it's the worst feeling in the world to hit the appropriate shot and get penalized. I'll tell you what, you talk about, the argument would be like, when you hit a divot, right? Like people are like, oh, you should get relief from the divot. If you ask any tour pro if they would rather hit out of a divot, unless it was absolutely disastrous, but at just a normal divot 
or hit a ball that has mud on it, you know, just a quarter of the a quarter of the ball. Every single one would take the divot because although it's a difficult shot, you have total control over what the ball is going to do. When you have mud on it, you don't have an ounce of control. And so I just really, that's my biggest pet peeve in golf is hitting the proper shot and getting penalized. All right. Next time I talk to, to Jay, I'll see if I can get a mud ball rule uh, invoked <laughs> somewhere. We'll fit. We'll figure out the logistics of it later, but Bo Hostler, much appreciate you coming on. I enjoyed the time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. That'll do it. This has been another episode of 300 Yards to Unknown, and we'll catch you next time.